You're listening to The Global N on K103. NATO, four letters that are at the heart of international discussions. Four letters for North Atlantic Treaty Organization. Four letters for 31 countries. Finland just joined it, Sweden wants to, but Turkey is against. That's the topic of the day in the global in. Welcome, bienvenue, marhaban, welcome and bienvenido, dege mehamad. My name is Hugo and today I'm joined with Beneta and Sultan. You're listening to The Global In on K103 Radio and this show is made in partnership with Utrecht Politiska Ferningen. Each month we discuss a topic of foreign affairs and today we will discuss NATO through the prism of Finland, Sweden and Turkey with our guest Paul Levin who is an associate research fellow at the Swedish Institute of Foreign Affairs. But Sultan, what we really talk about today? We will talk about NATO at the crossroads, Finland, Sweden, Turkey and the future of the alliance. And uh, in the post-World War II era, Finland and Sweden have adhered to a policy of neutrality, choosing to avoid NATO membership while maintaining close cooperation with the alliance. However, recent events such as Russia's assertiveness in the Baltic region and the invasion of Ukraine have pushed both nations to reconsider their security policies and contemplate NATO membership. As Sweden officially requested to join NATO in May 2022, it signaled a potential shift in the region's security landscape. But the road to NATO membership is not without obstacles. Turkey, a long-standing member of the alliance, holds the power to widow any new members and has expressed concerns over the accession of Finland and Sweden. With historical tensions and unresolved disputes in play, the future of these Nordic countries within NATO remains uncertain. And uh, in this episode, we will delve into the factors driving Finland and Sweden's potential NATO membership, examine Turkey's role in the decision-making process, and explore key developments and incidents that have shaped the relationship between these nations and the alliance. We'll also discuss the possible implications of their accession to NATO and how it could impact the future of the organization. Can you give to us a bit of background and history about NATO? Of course. So NATO, or the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, was founded in 1949 as a military alliance to counterbalance the Soviet Union's growing influence in Europe. Since then, it has evolved to include 30 member states that pledged to defend one another in case of an attack on any of them. While Finland and Sweden are not members, have cooperated closely with NATO through various uh, partnership programs. Turkey, on the other hand, has been a member since 1952 and has played a significant role in the alliance decision-making process. Finland and Sweden have been neutral since World War II, Recent Russian aggression, though, in the Baltic area have changed the security picture. Both nations are reassessing their security strategies and considering NATO membership. Sweden formally requested entry into NATO on 16 May 2022. 
this decision was driven by concerns over regional security, increased defense cooperation with other Nordic countries, and the need to adopt the evolving geopolitical landscape. As a NATO member, Turkey has the power to veto any prospective member's accession to the alliance. This is because NATO operates on a consensus basis, meaning all current members must agree on the admission of a new member. Turkey has expressed concerns about the accession of Finland and Sweden, citing historical tensions and unresolved disputes. Sweden cooperates with NATO through cooperation programs like Partnership for Peace while being outside NATO for decades. Now, due to security concerns, Sweden is considering NATO membership. Sweden's probable NATO admission would transform its security posture, but require overcoming Turkey's weight power. So several events have shaped Finland, Sweden, Turkey and NATO. After Russia's annexation of uh, Crimea in 2014, Finland and Sweden increased NATO defense cooperation. Finnish and Swedish military participated in NATO's Baltic military drills. Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine on February 24, 2022 brought Sweden and Finland closer to NATO's doorstep. Thank you, Sultan, for all this background uh, information about NATO. To discuss about that, we're really happy to welcome our guest, Paul Levin, uh, Associate Research Fellow at the Swedish Institute of International Affairs, and is specialized in, among other things, Turkish foreign policy. Hello, Paul, and thank you for being our guest today. So, after everything that has been said, which do you think are the main events we should focus on? Or are there any events that you feel should be kept into account when discussing this matter? Well, uh, I mean, it's been a, a quite a process. I, I'm, I'm, I'm worried that I'll forget some <laughs> important events. But I mean, a uh, the war, the Russian uh, war of aggression in Ukraine, the expansion of, <clears throat> of the war um, uh, uh, in February of last year, of course, was for a Swedish uh, from the Swedish point of view, a trigger, and that's what prompted the, the social democratic government to decide to apply for accession into NATO. Um, and then shortly, sort of after, right before Sweden officially, the Swedish government declared that they would apply, the Friday the 13th, uh, an unlucky date uh, for, for the Swedish government, uh, Erdogan came out uh, from a, a visit to the to the mosque, and declared in response to a journalist's question that he could not uh, see favorably uh, on a Swedish and Finnish application. Um, so that's when it sort of it first became known that he intended to place his veto. Um, and there, uh, and then a, another big sort of marker was uh, the the. Um, June summit, uh, 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 the NATO summit in Madrid in June. Now I'm actually forgetting the, the exact date. It was in the 20th uh, something, that the week of the 20th, um, the 22nd or 24th or something like that. And the Swedish delegation had, uh, uh, you know, spent a, a full day of nego- negotiating, um, with, uh, you know, Magdalena Andersson, um, and the, the Finnish and, and uh, Turkish heads of state, and they negotiated this um, famous or infamous uh, trilateral memorandum, an agreement that allowed Sweden and Finland to actually 
uh, attain invitee status. Um, and that's when the process of actually having NATO member states ratify Sweden and Finland began. So that's another sort of uh, key uh, key date, I would say. And then there were in between uh, the, the the NATO summit in Madrid and and now we've ha- we had a series of, of demonstrations in Sweden uh, with uh, sort of uh, you know PKK flags being waved and there was a, a doll of Erdogan being hoisted up in the air and uh, uh, there was a burning of the Quran as well and all those things aggravated uh, the Turkish side and led to a a pause in uh, negotiations um, starting, I think it was in January uh, of this year. So those are some of the key, I think, uh, milestones, if you will. And the second question, you mentioned already in your first answer, uh, the Russian, of course, war of expansion invasion. And how do you think that uh, Russian assertiveness, let's say that, in the Baltic region has influenced uh, the Swedish and Finnish uh, security policies and NATO membership campaigns? Like, would you say that's the main factor for them? Or, yeah. Yeah, no, I think that's that's the, the, that's the correct analysis. And I mean, it, this Sweden had a, has a very long history of, uh, you know, neutrality policy and, and, and uh, a non-aligned status during the uh, the Cold War, I mean, it, it reaches back to before World War II, but, but World War II is when this sort of neutrality policy became cemented. And it was in part, you know, a kind of survival strategy. It was a way to try to not antagonize Hitler's Germany uh, and try to, you know, there, thereby uh, stay out of the war, even though our neighboring uh, Scandinavian uh, countries were being invaded. Uh, we chose not to uh, side with them and defend them. Uh, so it was not really a moral policy per se. It was more a realist policy of trying to stay out of the war. Uh, and Sweden succeeded in that. And in time, that policy sort of came to, um, it attained, it, it got uh, almost moral overtones, I would say. Um, so during the premiership of Olof Palme, for example, the social democratic uh, uh, prime minister who became known for uh, standing up uh, against, uh, in particular, the United States, uh, walking, for example, with the North uh, 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 Vietnamese uh, ambassador in demonstration against uh, U.S. aggression in, in Vietnam, bombings, uh, and uh, and so on. The the Sweden came to present itself as sort of offering a third way. Um, and uh, leading a sort of non-aligned movement in between the two blocs during the Cold War, the Soviet Union and the Warsaw Pact on one side and the United States and, and uh, the Atlantic community, NATO, on the other side. Um, and uh, I mean, there were some critics of this and there were some who argued in favor of NATO membership. But uh, by and large, I think there was a, a, a big buy-in uh, behind this non-aligned policy. And the, the formal policy for a long time was known as non-alignment in peacetime, uh, aiming towards neutrality in war. That, so there were two components to this policy, neutrality and, uh, and non-aligned status. Um, in reality, however, even as we were sort of waving this, this flag of neutrality and non-aligned status very high, uh, even Olaf Palme uh, was fully aware of 
Swedish uh, sort of defense cooperation with the United States and NATO, and uh, we were also benefiting to some extent from um, you know NATO's and the U.S. Um, uh, uh, nuclear weapons umbrella. I think after the end of the Cold War. There was a period in which there was sort of a liberal hope, uh, you know, expressed most famously by Francis Fukuyama, as you may know, uh, you know, in the end of history, right? Uh, not that history per se would end, but that this ideological battle between uh, Marxism and capitalism and democracy and liberalism, on the other hand, that that was over and essentially uh, liberalism, capitalism and democracy had won. And that every everybody now would more or less become friends and there was a... I think a hope that that Russia would become uh, better integrated in in um, the international system. Uh, China was let into the World Trade Organization, uh, and there was a similar hope there that by trading and integrating these uh, uh, countries more into to you know the, the Western sphere, sphere uh, old enemies uh, enmities would be overcome. Um, in reality, uh, there were. There was always a, a lot of disagreements and, and uh, um, you know, former Warsaw Pact countries and former Soviet colonies like the Baltic states, for example, they immediately uh, sought protection uh, in NATO. They did not trust uh, Russian sort of uh, promises and, and Russian rhetoric. And uh, there was a push from Eastern Europe to seek protection uh, under the NATO umbrella. And therefore, uh, NATO expanded. Russia in, uh, interpreted that um, as, uh, as um, you know, NATO going back on promises uh, uh, that had been made, I think, to Yeltsin. Uh, or, or, if it, or if it was Gorbachev, and I'm, I'm actually not entirely sure. <laughs> but... Um, Regardless, Russia perceived NATO expansion or enlargement as a threat. Uh, and uh, um, under Putin, um, Russia has become increasingly authoritarian, and it has become increasingly belligerent and aggressive. So, you know, if you add up um, a whole range of actions by uh, the, the Russian um, the president, you know, and, and, and Russia, including sort of the, the war in, in Georgia, uh, uh, aggression in, in Crimea, in, in the Donbass 2014, uh, a number of covert operations, including meddling into the U.S. elections in 2016, hacking uh, de- Democrats' uh, servers, uh, including uh, uh, you know, influ- influence operations and, and sort of these, the, the, the known, um, I don't know if you're familiar with them, but the Internet Research Agency, these sort of uh, armies of, of uh, uh, bots and, uh, and people working on influence operations uh, and trying to spread disinformation and essentially trying to undermine dem- democracy, strengthening especially the far right in, in various places in Europe but also the left. Uh, and then targeted assassinations, including the Skripal uh, um, assassination and then several others. So there's like a whole, I think, range of actions that Russia has taken over the past 10 or so years that has pushed countries like Sweden and Finland uh, uh, to, um, to become much more worried about Russian aggression. Uh, so that history, I think, played a role. And then it's the fact that, um, you know, 
Well, if you look at a map um, and you look at, at uh, NATO as it looks right now, there's a big gap with, you know, with Sweden out and Finland in. Uh, so, you know, Norway is a member of NATO. Denmark's a member of NATO. Finland is now a member of NATO. That would turn the entire Baltic Sea into almost a NATO, uh, you know, lake uh, if it weren't for Kaliningrad and, and St. Petersburg, um, if Sweden were to join. So it makes strategic sense for NATO and also uh, uh, for for Finland and for the defense of the Baltic states to have Sweden as well, because it's easier to move troops sort of across the territory. You could station NATO troops and, and installations, uh, if, if you w- wished, on Gotland, the island uh, in, the, in the Baltic Sea. Which sometimes, you know, military experts describe as an unsinkable aircraft carrier. Um, right. So there are a lot of uh, reasons why it makes sense to have Sweden and Finland uh, going together. And then having stayed outside of NATO, uh, under the former foreign, uh, Swedish foreign minister, Peter Hultqvist, uh, the two countries developed incredibly tight, uh, defense cooperation ties. Uh, so there was a fear that if, you know, we would not go, you know, enter into NATO together, then that would weaken some of those ties that we had developed over, over, um, Hultqvist and, you know, even before him. Um, became, it became known as the Hultqvist, Hultqvist doctrine to have these strong defense cooperation agreements with very, uh, other Nordic countries and NATO countries without formally being a member of NATO. As sort of a, a, a second best, if you will. So I think those were the, those are the main reasons why why um, both Sweden and Finland and NATO wanted to, the two to join together. Uh, and then well, one of the the main arguments that even those who otherwise were in favor of Swedish NATO accession um, for quite some time. One of the arguments that even even they, uh, I, you know, I, I think made made this not a very big issue in Sweden was that Finland was a, in a very vulnerable position vis-a-vis the Soviet Union and later on Russia. So if Sweden were to declare that we wanted to join NATO, there was a fear both in Finland and in Sweden, a concern that that would force the Soviet Union and later Russia to uh, gain greater control over Finland. So the Swedish, even proponents of Swedish NATO accession did not push the issue because uh, of concern for Finland. But what happened with the, the Russian renewed invasion and the sort of blatant uh, aggression in violation of international law, uh, invading a large uh, sovereign country like Ukraine, um, what happened was that Finland decided to move ahead. And and uh, when Finland so clearly decided to move ahead and seek protection in NATO, uh, that made it uh, difficult, I think, for Sweden to to uh, uh, not join forces, essentially. And it removed the last sort of convincing argument against NATO accession to many, uh, not the least in, in, uh, uh, in the Social Democratic Party. Yeah, that was like the, the next question. So we had like, what was no, I, the... I covered several questions. Yeah, that, yeah that's did. super good. That's super good. Because like, we were like, um, what was the significance in them like trying to enter in NATO together? Like not, uh, only Sweden, not only Finland, and Finland and NATO and the Finland and Sweden together. Even if we uh, know that now it didn't really work at the end, but why it was like so important in a way to really apply, uh, together. Yeah, I mean, I think both Finland and Sweden and and the rest of NATO really wanted wanted Sweden and Finland to walk hand in hand, 
And I'm, I have, I don't know about you guys, but I have never experienced such sort of, if you will, you know, brotherly sympathies. Uh, Finland has never played such a big role in Swedish debates uh, on foreign policy and, and uh, j- just generally speaking as, as they have uh, during this period. Uh, so there, there's a history. I mean, there's, um, I mean, there's a longer history during the, 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 during World War II and the, the Finnish Winter War. Uh, many Swedish families, including my father's family, received Finnish, uh, children who were sent abroad to Sweden to stay uh, during the war to keep them safe. So there's a long sort of tradition of brotherhood and Sweden and Finland were, and, uh, were, uh, you know, part of the same, same country for, for a long period of time. But in more recent history, Sweden, the, a social democratic government, uh, in the 1990s decided to seek uh, membership in the European Community, and when they did so, they did so in a. They announced it uh, in a essentially a footnote or just one bullet point in a in a, in a package uh, uh, aimed at resolving a, a financial crisis, and they did so without really uh, consulting the uh, Helsinki first. And that the Finns considered that a real sort of uh, betrayal, and they were quite upset about that. That Sweden did not cons- consult them first because uh, it could have national security implications for them in their relations to Russia. Because joining the EU meant that Sweden was no longer formally neutral uh, anymore, or could not stay uh, neutral. So now that uh, you know, after that, Swedish and Finnish, uh, I think governments tried to. And I'm not an expert on fin- Swedish-Finnish relations, so take this with a grain of salt. But my understanding is that they, after that, really tried to sort of reassure each other that they would always consult. Uh, with with each other back and forth. Can you explain, like, also, like, because it makes sense that Sweden and Finland uh, join NATO together, but uh, does not uh, the like Turkey and especially Erdogan don't really agree on that, uh, especially about Sweden. So can you explain right. a bit more about like this uh, Turkish decision to not uh, allow uh, Sweden and to 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 put their veto on this decision? Yeah, well, the, the decision was a surprise to many. I mean, uh, I and some other experts had had warned or, you know, when asked, had said that, yes, there's a risk that Turkey may not agree, uh, may not ratify Swedish accession. Uh, but the, the message, the signals that Turkey had sent was that they would approve the, the, the Swedish, the Turkish foreign minister had told the Swedish foreign minister, the Turkish president had told the Finnish president that he would accept. Um, so, in a number of different settings, the message had been conveyed that Turkey stood behind NATO's so-called open-door policy uh, and, and would not object to Swedish accession. So, therefore, it did come as, as a uh, surprise to many. Um, and, you know, when everyone explained uh, why, and in, in later explanations, uh, they have pointed to uh, the presence of the PKK, um, a, a, a Kurdish um, uh, organization that is an, an insurgency, uh, leads uh, an armed insurgency in Turkey, um, and uh, uh, which, uh, you know, Turkey has long considered a terrorist organization and which is also labeled a terrorist organization by the EU, uh, the US, and by Sweden since the 1980s, actually. Uh, and uh, Turkey has argued for a long time that uh, the PKK has 
to uh, are, are able to operate in Sweden, are able to do fundraising, are able to do recruitment and propaganda and so on. Uh, and they are also complaining that there are other groups that Turkey, but in this case, only Turkey views as, uh, or almost only Turkey views as terrorist organizations, including a, an, a group uh, known nowadays in Turkey as FETÖ, the Fetulaist terrorist organization, uh, more commonly known as the Gulen movement, a religious movement that once was allied with Erdogan, but after a, a sort of power struggle, they had a massive falling out. Uh, and, uh, you know, many believe that the Gulen movement was behind the attempted coup in 2016. Uh, and there are some leading Gulenists and former Gulenists and people associated with the Gulen movement, uh, who have fled, uh, who fled after the coup, uh, to uh, Greece and other countries. And, and, uh, a few of them are in Sweden. And Turkey wants Sweden to strike down on this group. Um, so, you know, those are some of the, the concerns, the, the main complaints that Turkey has raised uh, against Sweden. And uh, also the fact that Sweden um, has had an informal arms embargo on Turkey. There is no formal arms embargo. But since 2019, Sweden did not uh, approve any sales of um arms or weapons equipment to Turkey, and that was following the Turkish invasion of Afrin in 2018, the uh, traditionally Kurdish area um, in uh, northwest of Syria. Uh, you have also mentioned the PKK and the terrorist movements and how some of the movements are only classified as terrorists by the Turkish state, the Turkish government, and not other governments and such. So... Um, What, regarding the possible extradition of Kurdish refugees as one of Turkey's requests for uh, lifting the veto, uh, do you think, your personal opinion, do you think that Sweden should and could follow, like, actually comply with this request? And what president do you think, what kind of president would it set? And Okay, yeah, well... Uh, I mean, if you're asking my opinion, my personal opinion, I, I think that the Turkish justice system is um, the 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 rule of law is so uh, so weak in Turkey, and these the the judicial system is so highly politicized um, and um, mistreatment of prisoners and uh, outright torture is so prevalent that I find it quite problematic that we would extradite uh, or or deport asylum seekers uh, who might risk political trials or or, um, or mistreatment in, in, in Turkish uh, uh, prisons so so that's that's my sort of personal opinion in terms of you know The tr the question of extraditions and deportations is a little tricky. It's a little detailed, and and you have to be a real expert in 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 uh, um, migration law really to to understand it all. And I'm not. Um, but um, you know, there are two two elements to it. There's well, one one question is about extraditions, and the other one is about deportations. So. Extraditions is when one country asks another for a, a foreign country to extradite, uh, send back uh, one particular named individual. So it's somebody who uh, who's accused of a crime, 
and and the you, you know you, there's a formal process by which you ask for that person to be extradited. Um, and uh, we have seen very few people extradited from from Sweden. Um, there was one person who was extradited based, but he was uh, to Turkey. He was extradited uh, on the basis of a. Um, a fraud charge. Uh, so far, uh, people accused of um, being members of terrorist organizations have not been extradited to Turkey. The Supreme Swedish Supreme Court has has said no, um, and they've said no with reference either to the poor uh, poor uh, quality of evidence the Turkish authorities have provided uh, by reference to the fact that some of them are Swedish citizens and therefore we don't extradite Swedish citizens. Um, or by the risk that they will face a political uh, trial uh, or persecution and and or mistreatment and or torture in Turkish Turkish prisons. So those are the main reasons. Uh, we have seen uh, two deportations. Now deportations is just uh, so there's a whole range of things here. It's when you come to another country and you apply to become a permanent resident or apply for a working permit or perhaps asylum, political asylum, uh, and you can either be barred from entering the country, uh, uh, you know, you can you know not be granted a visa, uh, or you can go to to the to the borders and there be, be barred from entry. Or once you have entry, that you can be uh, you know, kicked out, deported. So th- that's why when Turkey, Erdogan keeps mentioning, you know, different numbers of people that he wants to be sent back, it includes all of this list of people. And, you know, there are always new people applying for asylum or, uh, or, uh, uh, residency. Some are denied, some are rejected at the border. So it's kind of a fluid number, um, that we're talking about. But, uh, there have been two cases of people deported asylum seekers, Kurdish, um, whereby the Swedish secret uh, or security police, SAPL, had uh, said that they are uh, they have ties to the PKK. And that was the reason why um, the migration agency said no to their asylum application and then in the end deported them. They, they were deported after these negotiations with Turkey started, and that has raised, that have made many people uh, skeptical and critical of this and worried that it may be a result of these negotiations and just an attempt to sort of placate Erdogan. But it should, and you know, maybe it is. Uh, mig- the migration agency say it says that they make the decisions on the basis of the merits of the cases, and, and they get very angry if you accuse them of, of sort of being um, sort of influenced by these negotiations. But you can point to the fact that SAPO, the, 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 the judgment about links, links to the PKK, they actually date back several years ago. So they, the, the determination that they should be kicked out of Sweden, deported, uh, dates back to way before these negotiations with Turkey started. And I think there are some 30 or so cases where SAPO several years ago made this determination of links to the PKK. There was one deportation uh, in 2020, uh, a few years before these negotiations started as well. So there is, so it's not entirely unique. So I, I think it's a little premature to say that the reason we've seen two deportations is because of these negotiations. It's at least a little hard to to, to uh, tell. But I mean, it doesn't change, change the fact that many Kurds in Sweden, uh, especially Kurds who have you know sought asylum to Sweden feel like Kurds are being made the sort of sacrificial lamb, if you will, the, the, the pawn that's being sacrificed on, on this 
in order to get Sweden into to NATO, because it's very clear what Erdogan wants. Um, but so far, no extraditions of terror suspects, uh, two deportations, one person who was supposed to be deported uh, in the end was not uh, occurred uh, because it, the migration agency uh, dis- made the decision that he would be threatened if he was returned to Turkey. But I can imagine that you know, there are still several cases of pending uh, deportation, deportation decisions. I can imagine that we might see more deportations uh, in, in the near future. future. It's not impossible anyway. As we mentioned before, the Turkish elections, uh, much, much of these uh, things will be dependent on Turkish elections. And therefore, my uh, final question would also be about what is your opinion on the upcoming Turkish elections? In uh, what way do you think the results will impact the NATO question? Well, that's a good question, and and it's it's really interesting right now. Uh, uh, let me let me ask the, the answer the first question or the second question first. How would it impact? Well, it's very clear that the the uh, that Erdogan has said no to to Swedish NATO accession, and after the elections, um, I would suspect that he might hold out for a little bit longer. It may be that he will ease up because there is no more political pressure on him. So then maybe he can, uh, he doesn't have to be so tough on Sweden. But, uh, the opposition has said that they will, they would, uh, uh ratify, uh, more, you know, more or less clearly. They've made, made it very, you know, signaled very clearly that they would ratify Swedish accession. So if the opposition were to win, I think it's quite possible that we might see a ratification uh, sometime soon, perhaps even before the the next uh, NATO summit, which is scheduled to take place in Vilnius uh, on July 11th to 12th. Now, I know there are some experts who say that that's a very tight schedule, that parliament only will it's only supposed to reconvene to uh, you know essentially be assembled the new parliament after the elections and that they will then go on recess until october i think that if there's a will if the opposition wins which is possible uh if they win uh and they want to send a clear signal to the west and nato that they want to, you know there this is a new government there's a new sheriff in town if you will uh and they intend to be more westward uh, oriented uh, more nato friendly and so on then uh, you know convening parliament to ratify the swedish succession would be a good such signal so it's not impossible but you know Erdogan is good at winning elections he's won elections almost you know entirely almost every single election over the past 20 years he has all the levers of power he controls the main printed media especially and many of the, the large tv stations he controls also the court system and the um election uh, authority so uh, it's an uphill battle for the opposition uh, and uh, there are some you know, additional candidates that may spoil a first round win for the opposition. If they don't win 50% in the first round of the presidential election, it will go to a second round. Um, and then it'll likely be Erdogan against Kemal Kılıçdaroğlu, who's leader of the, the main uh, opposition party, the old People's Republican, uh, Republican People's Party, CHP. And, uh, <clears throat> You know, that, that's going to be a tough uh, election campaign. So I, I think anything almost can happen in Turkey. And, uh, you know, we might see uh, 
you know, if there are shenanigans, if you will, if there are problems in the election and Erdogan is seen by the opposition as, uh, you know, cheating or not respecting the outcome of the election, we can see massive public demonstrations and that could also get violent. So it's it's a very interesting and I think exciting time in, in, in Turkey uh, th- this summer. I actually have one last question tied into it, which uh, I do not remember what article I read it in, but you stated in one of your recent interviews or statements <laughs> that there is not not much more uh, you think that Sweden can do in the realm of law to bl- basically unblock this impasse. And we mentioned like the refugee, like the deportations uh, that we've mentioned, the possibly the Turkish elections uh, changing the environment or anything. But if Erdogan were to win again, do you think there's any more, like concretely speaking, do you think there's any more that Sweden could do to unblock the situation and get the ratification even with the current government? Well, so, yes, I did say that. I said that in a, in a piece I wrote for something called the Foreign Policy Research Institute. Yeah, that and was I also it, yeah. Wrote, uh, and I also wrote an absurdly long Twitter thread, so I don't know which one you read. But <laughs> I read the article. I read the, the article. article, okay. Yeah. Very good. Yeah, no, I mean, and it's um, it's a little complicated because this trilateral memorandum, this, this uh, three-party agreement that we, we signed with Turkey, Sweden, Finland, and Turkey, signed in June of last year, It's a list of things that Sweden and Finland were supposed to do, but it's not like a checkbox kind of thing. Pass this law or do it's, it's sort of, you know, some of them are very uh, vague uh, commitments. Sweden commits to fight terrorism and terror financing and so on. So, you know, Sweden has taken action on all of the, the main uh, areas or all of the, the items listed. It's just a question of like, when do you, when can you say that you have, you know, fought terrorist financing, right? It's, it's, a, it's a question of judgment uh, matter. So when it comes to, you know, uh, you know, a, a counterterrorism work in Sweden, Sweden has, has uh, you know, uh, drafted and, and, and passed a new comprehensive counterterrorism law. Uh, and, and it should be noted that that's not something that we did in response to Turkey, uh, Turkish requests. It's something that Sweden did And I think the, the history is that in 2015 and 16, Swedish prosecutors found it really difficult to stop people from going to Syria to fight with ISIS and also to prosecute them uh, once they did that, because it's not it hasn't been illegal to be a member of or affiliated with a terrorist organization in Sweden. You had to actually prove uh, concrete crimes, uh, terrorist crimes for each individual. And that was very hard to do. So it prompted an, uh, a discussion in Sweden And uh, there was a commission of inquiry uh, that we we always have to, in Sweden, we all have to prepare uh, laws very diligently. So there's always a commission of inquiry. Um, and that commission presented its results in 2019. Uh, and essentially, the law that was passed last year, came into force in July, was the, the law that had been proposed by this commission of inquiry. But... Then there were some, uh, you know, the, the legal review board uh, in parliament had criti- uh, some criticism, and they said that for one particular part of it uh, to pass, namely making membership of an organization or support for an organization as such, uh, for that to be able to work, we have to change our constitution. So that there was also then a process of changing the constitution, 
uh, and freedom of assembly to make it possible to sort of uh, outlaw uh, support for an organization that came into force in June uh, in, in January of uh, this year, and after that, the final piece of legislation uh, was uh, debated and it will be uh, voted on shortly in May. And when that piece of legislation comes comes into place, then Sweden has taken all the sort of legislative uh, measures that it can really do, uh, and and they address Turkey's concerns, right? They t- toughen the, the anti-terrorism laws. What I can imagine is that Turkish authorities, if Erdogan wins, and they don't want to hand off a quick ratification before the July summit, that they will say, sure, it's great that you have... So they have two options, essentially. They could say, good, the last piece of the legislation is now in the books, and it's likely to enter uh, into force in uh, on June 1st. And they could say... That's all we waited for. We were what we, you know, we we uh, were waiting for this last piece of legislation. More likely, perhaps, is they will say, "Sure, you know, you have the laws, but we want to see the results of these laws." So I think that Erdogan would then likely wait for prosecutions uh, of um, terrorism sus- suspects, people accused of trying to finance the PKK or uh, recruit people to the PKK and, and those things. And, you know, I don't know what the police is doing there. I think that there is ongoing work to try to sort of, uh, you know, uh, investigate uh, such activities. But, uh, you know, who knows? Do they have evidence of crimes? Will they be able to commit people in courts? You know, we have a, an independent uh, judiciary in Sweden, so there are no guarantees there. So that could drag out. Uh, so that's one. That's what I think might happen if Erdogan stays in power. Either he says, uh, you know, June first, fine, we're good with that, we approve you before uh, Vilnius, or he says, um, you know, we'll wait for for the effects of these new laws. Thank you, Paul Levin, for being our guest today. Uh, that's the end of the global info today. So I'll let you with uh, the following program on K103 Radio. Have a great day. Thank, Thank you very you. much. Thank you. All right. Thanks for having me. Thanks for, for good questions. <laughs> Those were very good answers. So thank you very much. You're listening to The Global N on K103. Uh, so yeah, we do the... Yay, that was good. Okay, here we go.